Hello and welcome to 30 for 30 Plus. My name is Jody Avergan. Today, behind the scenes of Six Who Sat, our documentary about 1968, 1972, and protests by a group of women to be treated fairly in the world of long-distance running. I'm joined by two of the folks behind the episode, Greta Cohn of Transmitter Media, who produced this episode. Hi, Greta. Hey, Jody. And Hillary Frank is here, who narrated it. Hello. Hey, Jody. Should we confess that none of us are really runners uh, right off the bat? Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, You know, I think we're all maybe athletic or sporty or do stuff. But Hillary, you ran for the first time while doing this. I completed a 5K and uh-huh. I feel so proud of myself. <laughs> did you did you <laughs> You weren't inspired to do it because you were working on this piece, were you? Well, I mean, I wouldn't say I was uninspired. Uh I um, tried to run a 5K. I've been trying since like 2013. Mm -hmm. And I always wind up getting sick, like get a sinus infection. I'm like, uh, you know, I'm giving up. That's it. Throw in the towel. Weather's getting cold. I'm done. And then I don't come back to it till the next year. And then something else gets in the way. And I did get sick. Well, I was in the middle of training for this 5K, but I think that working on this doc and hearing these women like persevere did inspire me to keep going. The legacy of 1972 lives. Uh, I mean, I think about that line that we end the show with, you know, running gives you freedom. Like, I'll never forget that line. That's Mm -hmm. pretty cool. Kind of makes me want to get out there and run. You going to run a marathon, Greta? Not a marathon. I've done like, I think I've done one 5K, maybe a, a 10K. Um... I like running. I like running around my neighborhood. I like how, like it does, it feels quite free, right? Like you kind of, you you set your own pace, you set your own time, you choose your route. Um, But yeah, that's a really powerful line. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So we'll, we'll circle back at some of this stuff because I I think a lot of what we'll talk about today is just kind of why we all love this story, even though we're not necessarily runners, but I should add the usual disclaimer that if you have not listened to the episode itself, but you've made it two minutes into this episode, hit pause, Go back, listen to the documentary, and then come back and finish uh, listening to this. And we'll start by doing what we do in basically all these bonus episodes, which is with a piece of tape that didn't make it into the final episode. We do a lot of reporting and talk to a lot of folks, and then we end up not using a lot of tape that we still love for various reasons. So Greta, is there a piece of tape that you want to showcase here today? Yeah. Okay. So I brought two clips. And the first one that I want to start off by playing for you guys is something that came up a lot with the women runners that we spoke to. Um, Today, we have all this like high tech sweat wicking, you know, Lululemon fancy, you know, athletic wear. Um, At the time, they didn't have that. And so many of the women told us stories about, you know, these cotton shorts, which would like cut their thighs and they'd be like bleeding all over the place or um, the lack of access to sneakers, like running shoes, particularly in women's sizes. So Pat Barrett, who was the 17-year-old runner who did not know about the planned sit-down, had a particular story to tell us about that experience. It was very hard just going into a regular store to get shoes. I had a pair of um, Adidas, which are nice, and but I couldn't even get I couldn't even get a women's shoe. I, I don't remember finding a women's shoe. I had the trouble getting my size, so I wore a men's six, and and I got blistered terribly. Couldn't run for two weeks. It was terrible. But New Balance did make they did make women's shoes. The stores didn't carry them because there weren't that many women running, so it was hard to find even even proper footwear. We were getting me another pair, and my father, in the meantime, had to go. I asked him, can you have another bonnet put on go to Shoemaker? And the Shoemaker didn't know any better and put, like, um, 
you know, the shoe you put on uh, on on a, on a dress shoe on mm. the bottom of the sneaker. And I tried to do indoor track one time. Was slipping all over the place. It was kind of funny, but but so you know, it wasn't like you have today. Well, I love her accent. I'll just say that first off. There's some good accents in this piece. What do you? I mean, what do you make of that piece of tape, Hillary? It's really crazy how much we learned about like misogyny through making this piece, how the world of athletics was not set up for women. Mm-hmm. Uh, reporters were not um, set up to even talk about women in sports. Um, and then, and then just like all of the misogynistic tape that we dug up from archival was just like, uh, it was really crazy. There was some jaw-dropping archival, as you pointed out, and some just sort of outright misogyny. But I think that piece of tape also gets to just all the really kind of subtle ways in which these women and women at the time were just like, you know, swimming upstream in a sense. Um, and I think that's an important reminder that it's all the little day-to-day things as much as it is the big institutional stuff. I think it's also just like the wider culture did not understand running. People didn't see running as a thing that was done for sport or pleasure. Um, the fact that she would take her sneakers to a shoemaker and say, oh, I need some help repairing the bottoms. And they would put like dress shoe, like leather on the bottom of the sneaker because there was just not really this understanding. I remember George Hirsch told us that people basically thought they were freaks. Um, and so the women in our story in the beginning, they talk about how people would throw things at them and kind of like catcall them. And certainly that was particular to their experience of being women runners. But it seemed like from our reporting, um, nobody really got running. Yeah. Running was a weird thing that people did. Maybe this is the time to talk about one of the what I found to be one of the most sort of interesting themes here, which is about how change happens. I thought this was a really interesting piece that showed that in one sense, what these women were doing was revolutionary and huge, but in it, in that period, particularly between 68 and 72, and we tried to kind of give a sense of this in the piece, it was you know incremental battles. It was like, okay, we're going to fight to be official. Then we're going to fight to be run you know at the same time. Then we're going to fight for record. You know, but it was all just like fight the next battle in front of you. And I just wonder, did either of you feel like you learned something about just how change and progress and protest happens from from reporting on this? I just wonder if it was even that intentional that they mm-hmm. had this bigger goal in mind. It was like they were fighting for whatever was in front of them. I don't know, Greta, did did you get the sense that they were like, we're going to go all the way with this right from the start? Well, something that might give us a little bit of insight, particularly into Nina, is that she, I think, was a 17-year-old graduate of a nursing program. And you had to be 18 to complete whatever like last step of the process to become a nurse. And I believe that she agitated for her right to enter into nursing when she was ready to, when she was officially. So I think for her, she had a sort of like a spirit and a drive running through her, like when she saw injustice to really um, rise up on on behalf of what she thought was right or due. Some of this is in the piece, but there is like different levels of engagement with the larger fight among the different women. So I think some of them you talk to felt like, okay, I'm part of this big movement that's bigger than me. And then others were just like fighting the thing in front of their nose and maybe didn't care. I don't even know if that's the right way Mm -hmm. to phrase it about the larger fight. Yes. I think that some of the women saw what was happening right in front of them, understood that they could participate and help to make change. Like I think in particular, Lynn Blackstone, Liz Franceschini. And then I think someone like Catherine Switzer and also Nina Cusick had like a bigger picture 
goal. And one of the things they articulated to us was this desire for women to be admitted to run marathons in the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And so this was like a long range goal of theirs. And I remember when we were me- meeting with Nina and Jane, Jane Merka, they talked about this really important moment in their lives, which was watching Frank Shorter win the 1972 Olympics and how there was both an excitement and a celebration that an American had won, but also I think some anger maybe at women not being admitted to run the marathon in the Olympics. And then some melancholy about like what was what the fight would be to get women into the Olympics and like would they have the opportunity and so that was for for those for Nina and for Catherine, there was, I think, a longer range goal for some of the other women. I think it was really about like what Hillary and Jody, what you, what you were saying, which is it was right there in front of them. They were participating. I think it's important to point out, too, with the Olympics that at that time, and I don't know if it's still true, but um, you were considered an amateur um, if you entered the Olympics. And so the AAU wa- was making those decisions about which amateurs could enter the Olympics. Yeah. And and we kind of went back and forth on exactly what is the role of the AAU as a as a protagonist in this story. We didn't want to kind of totally boogeyman the AAU, um, but it was the thing that felt like it was a, an impediment in very kind of tangible and often sort of small ways. And I mean, I think ultimately this story hinges on the moment when Nina kind of says, I'm going to join this particular committee so that I can change this particular rule. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Do you, do you have a sense of like the AAU, not just for its own sake, but as the way that big organizing bodies kind of operate? Yeah. I mean, it's like you got to join them to beat them. And it reminds me a little bit of how Dan Savage joined the Republican Party in an effort to bring down a Republican candidate. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, I don't know. I, I, I guess that, you know, that's a strategy. Yeah. Yeah. It was so tricky to really understand what their role was um, uh, because they don't really exist today in the way that they existed back then. Yeah. Um, so trying to access their archives or even contact people who knew of this history was a little bit tricky. Yeah. And I mean, the AAU today is also is just, it's its own 30 for 30, uh, you know, and an incredibly complicated organization because it's one of these places where particularly in, with sports like basketball, it like amateur in name only and it's the place where a lot of the sort of lines get blurred between big money and amateurism and all of these things and so to think of the early it was just a nice insight into the early days of the aau as like truly an amateur organization that was trying to kind of like draw these big lines um it was just like a nice hidden history when Mm -hmm. i when most of what i know about the aau is as this other kind of seedier much seedier organization uh you said you had two pieces of tape do you want to play the second one yes so the second one is a little bit of hidden history um, that we really delighted in learning during the making of this. And it has to do with the laurel wreaths that the winners of the marathon get to wear. And I had never thought about where they come from, who makes them. And it turns out that one of our six is the person who has been making them since day one. Whoa. I didn't know this. <laughs> and Fred was at our house and he saw it. He thought it would be a good idea, you know, make it a more a classier race if they had uh, wreaths at the end of the run. So, uh, you know, I have no background in floral arrangements at all. <laughs> with a hanger, you know, and <laughs> made a circle and then covered it with mountain laurel. 
and then get it to the finish line before the runners. And if you ever see the picture of the 76 finish, Bill Rogers wins the race and he comes into Central Park and I think it was Mayor Beam puts the wreath on his head and he goes, and and I when I saw it, I, he, it was there were wires sticking oh. in his head. <laughs> so I've gotten better at that. <laughs> so, but I, you can see it on the film. It was <laughs> not good. <laughs> and you're still doing it. Yeah. Hmm. See, my claim to fame. <laughs> so that was Jane Merka with Nina Kusick talking about the origin story behind the laurel wreaths that they that they wear, uh, the winners of the New York Marathon wear. And she continues to make them to this day. Um, Fred Lebo happened to be at her house, saw the laurel, and was like, hey, this will class things up. Mm-hmm. Um, she told us that today she still delivers them on site, but nobody knows who she is. She kind of like puts them in plastic baggies and like puts them up on her shelf wherever the folks who organize are stationed. And she just kind of wanders in and drops them off and then wanders <laughs> off. Yeah. Um, but it's so cool because, I mean, the New York City Marathon now is, I, I, it's my favorite, like legit my favorite day in New York. It's just so wonderful. But it is also a big corporate event um, with tons of sponsors and it's on TV and tons of big money. And so to think, I mean, that's really cool that it's still got this sort of homespun element to it. Mm-hmm. She's like the Easter bunny of the New York marathon. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and that was, and that was part of also, I think part of this story too. I mean, how small were you surprised by how small the origins of this huge thing were, oh, how yeah. tight knit and small that community was? Yeah, truly. I think, um, because I, I too, like, I love the New York city marathon. I, uh, it runs right past my apartment in Greenpoint and I stand out there and I watch it and it often makes me feel emotional. And I, um, so to think that the earliest days were this like scrappy group of people who just loved to run, um, is, is really, it's quite a thing. It was amazing to me to imagine that scene in Central Park and this big thing was happening and the crowd was so small. Yeah. <laughs> like there's one guy shouting men and women together. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> like, and, and just like people must have been so confused and it must have just felt kind of chaotic and weird. And this big momentous thing was happening with, with just like such a small crowd. Right. Which I, which I think probably goes back to what we were discussing earlier, that when you're in that world, everything feels huge and every battle is huge. You take a slight step back, you know, and it, and it has its own context. Um, I do want to talk about that moment and that photo and how you put that scene together in the piece. Let's do that in a minute. But first, I'm going to take a quick break. All right, we're back. And you started talking about that scene that you made about the sit down itself. So from a like radio making standpoint, talk through how you tried to capture that moment. Right. So it's hard because not everyone from that moment is still alive, uh, notably Fred Lebo and um, and then Catherine Switzer, who was a big character in this story, wasn't there. Um, so we had to piece together um, the people who were still with us and who were who were there. And um, we 
something that was very helpful was Gerald Eskenazi's New York Times article. It gave us a lot of the details and visuals that we needed because also a lot of people's memories of that day uh, are pretty faded at this point. And so I was just trying to, as we were writing it, like put myself there um, as sort of like from a bird's eye view. What are we seeing? We're seeing the women lining up. Not all of the women know what's going on. There are these men handing out these signs. Um, and then like the men are pulling over the reporters and stuff, and which results in this iconic picture. Um, but all around it, there are these like sp- spinning parts. I don't know that all of the women understood what a momentous occasion it would be. I don't think that they saw at the time that this was going to be a sort of spark to change the rules that they had been fighting for for so long. And so I think like when you are just participating in your life and this is the this is what has been planned for the day and yes it is a plot, but I think that the details can become a little bit like fuzzy when you don't it, it's like um when you're at your own wedding, you're kind of taking the time to kind of like take snapshots of every single moment as they're happening because you want to remember them. And I think perhaps in this moment, you know, certain participants like Paul Fetcher, like he was like the he was one of, you know, the participants. He had made he made the signs and he was taking those snapshots every single moment of uh, minute to minute what was happening. Um, someone like Pat, who was just sort of caught up in something, I think, th- imagine the confusion she would have felt. And you're, I think you're, as a participant in your own life, you probably aren't taking those moment by moment snapshots. So for her, it was more of like an emotional recollection. Um, and for someone like Paul, it was more like mm-hmm. this moment, that moment, the following moment. So we had these different perspectives. And I think the combination between like the emotional memory of the event plus the um, sort of like moment by moment um, TikTok of the event kind of like came together to give us a really great overall. Not to mention the music and the sound design Mm. and all those other elements that we like to play with in radio too, which kind of felt like they slowed it down. Um, Did you feel like the fact that this is about a photograph or that this was captured in a photograph, did that kind of help you go there and have something to to paint a picture of or was it like restrictive because it was like oh we got to recreate what's what's there we can't really use our imagination since there's a there's a visual record of it i love having visuals in radio i think radio is best when it's visual um and it gave us sort of like a puzzle to unpack you know like sort of piecing it back together from the start how did they all wind up here it almost feels like the entire piece is that going way back mm-hmm. to figuring out how they all wound up there and how did this woman wind up there in a superman shirt like mm-hmm. it turns out it was just an accident yeah. <laughs> but it also is a statement um in the context of the whole thing so um i think it was it was a big help but um in terms of putting the story together logistically, it was hard to figure out where that photo should come. And we played with it in a lot of different ways, ranging from starting the piece with seeing the photo and try and then going and like literally unpacking it and to tell you how this photo came to be, all the way to um like having it in the in the end where it is now. Um, but we we really struggled with how to do it. And Jody, I think you helped us talk about what the photographer was seeing through his lens. Right. And that's when we see the photo for the first time. 
Yeah. And yeah, I think it's like, how do you stay in that moment, but still talk about the fact that this photo ended up existing? And so I think this trick of, we'll paint it through the eyes of what the photographer saw, the photographer's part of the scene in there. So you're, you're still keeping the listener and us narratively in that moment, but you can describe it. I, I reported a piece for an episode, um, two seasons ago that was about a photo that the Miami Heat took around uh, the death of Trayvon Martin. And so I kind of, agree with you that having this artifact, this visual artifact was a really nice thing to play with, but I, it was a challenge to do that same sort of thing about, do we start with it and then sort of go to each person in it and tell their backstory or do we save it as the culminating thing? The thing I learned from that was one of our producers, Keith Romer was giving me advice on, on it and just helping me with it. And at one point he was just like, you need to stop and just, you need to take a, take a pause and just describe the photograph. And I realized I'd been reporting this whole piece about a photograph and never actually just said, here's what it looks like. You know, it's important to have those. And you and you you have that nice moment, too. I also really love that this is sort of a, a story about two photographs. And at some point, I kind of realized that it's bracketed by that that photo of Catherine Switzer in 1967, um, which I think is like a little more iconic and people have seen. And then this mm-hmm. being like slightly more obscure coda. Had yeah. you seen either of these photos before? I had seen Greta? my Catherine Switzer photo. Do you think before. that photo is more um, famous because there's action to it? There's like the pulling of the bib and the punching of the guy. Um, and then this one is just so it's like almost in a non-action. Yeah. <laughs> They're just sitting down. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I, I, I like the sitting one. It's more powerful because it is still and you have to imagine how did we get to this moment? Whereas the other one is just like, whoa, this is crazy and all over the place. But I don't know. They're both they're both really powerful. Um, let's start to wrap up. But Hillary, I wanted to ask you, as listeners may know, you you founded a podcast called The Longest Shortest Time. You're no longer the host of it, but you're the managing uh, editor of it. I'm I'm the executive producer and okay. editor. Yeah, yeah. So, but The Longest Shortest Time is a fantastic podcast about parenting and lots more. Um, is there like any connection between? That world um, <laughs> and this world? I mean, there's you- totally a connection. So, um, the thing that made me really want to work on this um, program is that uh, I learned early on that the women, that women were told they shouldn't run long distances because uh, it was thought that their uteruses would fall out. And that was just one of the first facts I learned. And I just could not believe that. Um, I do a lot of work about uteruses uh, <laughs> because <laughs> The Longest Shortest Time is a show about parenthood. Um, and I know uh, a lot about uterine prolapse, which is what the doctors were referring to when they said your uterus will fall out. And it is a thing that happens, um, you know, th- that can happen in childbirth. And so it was interesting to me that doctors were saying, you may not be able to have children if you run long distances, but the thing that they were saying that was going to happen is actually much more likely to happen when you're having children than when you're yeah. running. And I just have to, I'll ask sort of naively, this was actually a thing that doctors were telling women. I mean, we have that anecdote of Catherine being told that, but it's still just kind of hard to believe even that many years, not I that know. many years ago. I know, mm-hmm. I know, right? Like when my mom was giving birth is yeah. when- yeah. This was common wisdom. Yeah, and we actually heard from someone on social media today who said, you know, my parents were were told the same thing and they listened to the podcast and made the connection. Wow. So, I mean, yeah. my mom was put in handcuffs while I was being born and that was standard procedure at Brooklyn Hospital. Wow. My goodness, yeah. 
So, so let's end on this actually, Gre- Greta, like a story like this, does it feel like recent history or does it feel like it's another era? I think we're shocked at how recent it truly is. You know, this is not that long ago when, you know, if I wanted to take up long distance running, I could have been told you can't do that. And I think it is, it was totally shocking to really realize like how recent this history is sitting across the table from Jane Merka, Nina Cusick, Lynn Blackstone, all of these women, and to understand that in the course of their lifetime and their you know, probably around like my mom's age, um, they would have been denied the opportunity to participate in sport. So, um, so it is really recent. It's it's too recent, I think. But I'm glad that that the that we have a very different perspective on it today. Yeah, I mean, and now these women are seen as heroes, particularly Catherine Switzer. She's known internationally. You know, they must have felt at the time like. They were up against an impossible goal, you know, at, at times at least. And here they are and and they're being celebrated. Um, all right. Thanks to you, Greta Cohen of Transmitter. Where can people find your work? Uh, you can check us out on Twitter at Transmitter Pods. And we have um, our great lineup of shows at Transmitter.fm. You're a podcast production company working with all sorts of great people and making Really good stuff, right? Thank you. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And Hillary Frank, uh, we talked about Longest Shortest Time, which yes. people can check out. What else you got going on? I also have a book called Weird Parenting Wins, and it's a collection of all kinds of like crowdsourced child trickery. And are you on, you're like on tour this, this fall, right? People uh, can see you yeah. Live? So it's, it's officially out January 15th, but is on presale now. Cool. All right. Greta Cohn from Transmitter Media and Hillary Frank, thank you so much for doing this. It was great. Congratulations again. I really like this piece. Thank you. It's so much thanks, fun to Jordy. work on. I know. And um, we should say thanks to all of you who are listening. And if you're running the marathon this weekend in New York City, good luck. And if you are listening to this, perhaps, while running the marathon or listen to our episode while running the marathon, because this will be out in time, let us know. You can uh, tweet at me, at Jody Avergan, or at 30 for 30, or you can send an email to 30 for 30 podcast at ESPN.com. Do that. Don't stop running and do that. Do that after you finish your marathon and have a donut or something. My name is Jody Avergan. Thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode, the fourth in our run of five episodes this season. Thanks again, and we'll see you soon. 